Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering. Come to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for his help. Lord, we are gathered as your temple, filled with your spirit to worship you. Help us. Give us ears to hear your word. In Christ's name, amen. One of the, um, one of the amazing things about the Bible is that it is so complete. Not only do we have here the story of creation and then the fall and then lots more falls and redemption and the consummation, but we have also included in this, this book that has been handed to us a playlist, a playlist of songs specially made for every occasion all along the way, all throughout our lives. And, all, and as we think about every aspect of of God's work and redemption. So there are creation songs. There are songs about the flood. There are songs about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, songs about captivity in Egypt, entire albums of songs about the exodus from Egypt. There are songs about sin and repentance and restoration, songs about the building of the temple and the completion of the temple and worshiping in the temple. There are wedding songs and funeral songs and sad blues songs and overly graphic love songs and happy pop songs and outlaw country songs about God's vengeance. And there are metal songs about angels and demons and spiritual warfare. And there are songs about the coming Messiah. And there are songs about his crucifixion and death and songs about his faithfulness and about his resurrection. There are songs about his ascension into heaven. Songs about his pouring out of the Spirit. Songs about his return and his judgment. Songs about the restoration of all things. And we could just keep going. Most of these songs are in the Psalms. But not all of them. You can find some of these songs in Genesis. The first song is in Genesis chapter 2. There are some songs in Exodus. There are some in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Chronicles. The Gospels have songs. The letters of Paul include songs. Peter, James, and John and Jude all have songs. And Revelation, of course, has several of the best songs. The final album and we don't often preach these songs, or at least I don't. Did you know I've never preached from psalms before? Um, and most of the reason why we don't often preach these songs is because we spend a lot of our time singing these songs or integrating them into our call to worship. But considering today that we are examining what it means to worship and the church's worship, it's fitting that we look closely at a song about worship. So our text this morning, Psalm 96, just to give you a little background on it, it was written by David. 
But as you'll see as we examine it, though David wrote it, this psalm rightfully belongs to the church. This is, this is our song. It speaks of a time in the, in the story of redemption after David, when the nations are being brought in because the people of God are rightly praising him. And so because the people of God are rightly praising God, the nations are compelled to join in worship. And then as a result of this, this, this great restoration, this reconciliation of humanity, creation itself begins to sing the praises of God. So to be able to understand that arc, A-R-C, arc, of, of, of Psalm 96, we first have to see that much of the story of the Bible itself is about disordered worship. So if Psalm 96 is about the restoration of worship, we have to ask, well, what is being restored? Well, it all begins with Genesis 1 and creation. This should be fresh to some of your minds. And in, in the creation story, we see that God is worthy of worship. That's what Genesis 1 is about. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy to be praised because he's eternal, because he's the creator above all, and all things are made by him. He is God. That's Genesis 1. Humanity in Genesis 1 is, is made as the, the final act, the, 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 the high mark of God's creation work. And we are made in his image to spread his glory, to be his image bearers, and to increase the visibility of God's reign over the earth. You could say, based on a, a favorable reading of Genesis 1, that humanity was created to lead creation in worship. We were meant to be the worship leaders, seated in God's throne room, facing outward to all of creation, encouraging them, leading them in worship. And by them, I mean the sun, moon, and stars, and all the things that fill the seas and the fields and so on. Well, Genesis 2 zooms in on that creation picture, and our first father, King Adam, is there in the presence of God in the garden temple, the throne room of God, and Adam is to live in thankfulness and obedience. This is Adam's worship. Adam and then his wife have, have an entire garden of, full of delights in which to enjoy God and to enjoy one another. There's a restriction we know about. This, this one law from God, the great high king, and obeying this one law is, in essence, living in obeisance to God as king. Overall, it is, obedience is an act of worship. And that really was Adam's primary responsibility in the garden, to live under the lordship of Yahweh and ascribe to the Lord his greatness. For Adam to enjoy the garden and obey God's word is for Adam to adore God, to worship God, to acknowledge God's goodness and his greatness in, in thanksgiving. But to fail in this, for Adam to disobey God's word, was to say to God, you're not worthy of praise. You're not good, you're not great, you're not trustworthy. You are not God most high. Something else or someone else is greater than you. And that's what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and his wife ate of the tree of which the Lord God said, do not eat. The woman listened to the voice of the serpent instead of God. And so, in doing that, she, she showed an idolatrous heart towards the serpent the serpent's word in Eve's heart was greater than God's word. Then the man listened to his wife. And so he showed an idolatrous heart toward his wife. His estimation of Eve was greater than his estimation of God. And Adam and his wife did not worship God. They worshiped created things instead. They did not ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. And it is this idolatry, fundamentally, that led to their expulsion, their, their exile from the garden temple, the place of God's presence. And from that moment, Paul in Romans says that creation itself, we don't see this so much in Genesis, but we see it stepping back, looking at the epistles. Paul says that creation itself at that moment was also subjected to futility and has been groaning ever since. Waiting, waiting, waiting to be set free from bondage. 
Because if humanity is the worship leader and creation is the choir and the worship leader has fallen, then creation also becomes disordered and cacophonous. And so from the fall onward, all things are waiting for the restoration. Waiting, as Paul says in Romans 8, waiting for the children of God to be freed from bondage to sin and brought into glory. And when that happens, all is made right again. All creation, again, will sing behind the worship of the new and better Adam. So that's what we're looking forward to. But we go from Adam, and we know that this is coming. So we go from Adam onto Abraham, and it is revealed that that in Abraham, somehow this restoration will come through his children, his, his offspring. And so we trace the story of that offspring, as we've been doing in Genesis, from Isaac to Jacob to the nation of Israel, and then on into the Exodus, as the elect people of God are brought out of Egypt and into God's presence at Mount Sinai. They've been redeemed by God, brought up through the waters, much like the first creation. They've been brought to God's holy mountain, much like the place that Adam was in, and they are called to be God's treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, Exodus 19. And you'd think, as you see that, oh, the restoration is about to happen. This this entire kingdom of priests, this holy nation that God has brought By his own power, by his strong right arm of redemption, this nation is going to worship God rightly in his presence as Adam was to do, and all things will be restored. But that's not what happens. Instead, just as their leader, Moses, is up on that mountain receiving the word from the Lord, the law that will show Israel the way of righteousness, that kingdom of of priests, that holy nation is down at the foot of the mountain creating for themselves idols to worship. And they make sacrifices to the golden idol, the work of their hands. And they celebrate with this massive feast. They get drunk. They commit abominations. Like Adam and Eve, they worshiped created things rather than the Creator. And this begins this back and forth for God's people between worshiping idols and worshiping the Lord, worshiping idols and worshiping the Lord. And that continues in God's holy nation from there on out, from Exodus to Judges, up until the point when a king appears from God that seems like he may be the one. He might be the one whose heart is fully set on God. And he's going to lead the people of God to rightly worship the one true God. But because his hands are stained with blood and violence, he's disqualified from the job. But he does have a son. And God says, this son of David will build a house for God. And his throne will be forever. And we're thinking, okay, a house for God. God's going to be present with his people. His people are going to worship him rightly. And it seems like this this son of David is the new Adam because rather than seeking the knowledge of good and evil in his own might, the way that Adam did and ate from the tree, this son passes the test. He asks the Lord to grant him wisdom, and the Lord does. And then this son is given the privilege of building for the Lord a temple, a dwelling place for God among his people. And at the the completion of the temple construction, it is like the seventh day in the garden. King Solomon stretches out his arms towards heaven in a posture of of, of worship, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God who has given rest to his people Israel. Do you remember the seventh day of creation? Rest. That's what happens here. But the rest doesn't last because Solomon's pride leads him to disobey God's design for marriage, and his multitude of wives turned away his heart to follow after other gods, much like the first Adam. Solomon listened to the voice of his wives. He also fell into idolatry. And the nation is divided, and it's golden calving season all over again. And eventually, because of their idolatry, the people of God are, like Adam and Eve, exiled to the east. They're sent away. God's royal priesthood, his holy nation, has given full on to idolatry. Listening to the voice of the created rather than the creator. Worshiping the created rather than the creator. God's not finished. 
we're just talking the story of the Bible. You're kind of picking up on that now. God's not finished with his people. He told Abraham that the nations would be blessed through his offspring. And God is true to his word. And that hasn't happened yet. So he brings his people back from exile, back into the land. And there, in, in, in that return from exile, there are these flashes of hope. Glimmers of hope. Some of the people of God want to worship the Lord again. They want to be God's people again. But exile has not changed their hearts. They are still spiritually distant from God because they are still bent towards false worship. The worship of idols. The worship of created things. And as we approach the end of the Old Testament, the last of the prophets... At the end of that age, all say, the day of the Lord is coming. He's coming. And when he does, he will be king. And the people who receive the king will worship the Lord rightly. So moving on from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that's what God's people are looking forward to from Malachi to Matthew. And in between, there are several hundred years that pass between the old and the new. But it's a dark several hundred years. There are no prophets. God's people do not hear from the Lord, and they wait. Some hold out hope that God will be faithful to his promises, and they wait, and they wait, and eventually comes the voice crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist, the first prophet in a long, long, long time. And John prepares the way of God's people. He calls them to repentance, tells them the king is coming, the kingdom is coming, and the king comes. The king arrives. And he is God himself, as the prophets said. And he is a man, just as the prophets said. And as a man, he obeys God in ways that Adam never would, in ways that Israel never could. And he was tempted in every way, just as they were, but without sin. Without idolatry, he proves he is the true worshiper that all of creation will sing with. And he teaches us, as he's here on the earth, he teaches us that the last hour, the end of the ages has come, and the end of the ages is defined by worship. John 4, Jesus says this to the woman at the well. The hour is coming and is now here. It's arrived. It's here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And what that means is the age of going back and forth between worship of God and idolatry. That age is ending. It's ending. Because of Messiah's coming and because of what he accomplishes at the cross and in the resurrection and in sending his spirit, God's people will no longer fall into the worship of created things. Instead, led by the Holy Spirit, the people of God, known as the church, shall worship the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only true God. That is the story of redemption. That is the, the, the whole Bible backstory that you need to know in order to understand Psalm 96. It's a story of, of the restoration of right worship in the age of Messiah and his church. So the title of this song, written by David, and we don't actually see this in the English Bibles, but in the old Greek translation of the Bible, the, the, the title is still there. And the title of the song is this. When the house was built up after the captivity. All right, let me say that again. The title of Psalm 96. When the house is built up after the captivity. A song of David. And that title is a reference to the future building up of God's true temple after humanity's captivity to sin and idolatry. In other words, the title is a reference to the church age, the age of the church, when Christ, the true temple, is before God and the people make up the earthly temple and are building it up, just as we saw last week. We are indwelt by his spirit. We are his temple. The temple is growing. It's being built up. The house of God is being built up. 
So verse 1, look with me at Psalm 96, verse 1. Now we can go there with a background that helps us. Verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now a new song, we sang one today. But it's not a new song, but it's new to us. A new song to us isn't that big of a deal. There are 100 million songs available on Spotify. And odds are, anytime you listen, you're going to hear a song that is new to you, or maybe new to humanity. But, but a new song written by the Holy Spirit, that's a big deal in the Bible. Because it speaks, whenever you see a new song in the Bible, it speaks of something new in the story of redemption that God has done. So, so when God redeemed Israel from Egypt, the Spirit wrote a song for Moses to sing. And you can find that song in Exodus 15. And when God brought his people into the promised land, Moses wrote and sang another new song, led along by the Spirit. And he said, you guys need to memorize this song and sing it every day. Deuteronomy 32. Isaiah says, a new song will be sung when the Redeemer comes and Israel repents and turns from stumbling in the darkness to walking in the light. New songs of worship are written by God when God does something new in the story of redemption because some new aspect of God's worthiness for worship is revealed to us. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. But he reveals himself gradually through his works. And when we see something new about God, we sing a new song of praise about God to God. So even in heaven, we see this. When God does something new among mankind in the story of redemption, the angels sing a new song written by the Spirit because even to them, something new about God is revealed to them. In Revelation 5, we see this. When it's revealed that God the Son, through his death on the cross, has shown himself worthy to open the scroll, the four living creatures who are some sort of angelic beings of some sort, and the 24 elders, and I don't know who they are, and they all sing a new song. Revelation 5, and they, they, Revelation 5, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom. Remember that kingdom of priests in Exodus? Christ has made them a kingdom by his work. He's made them priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the new song the angels sang when Christ was crucified. So the question then is, what is the occasion of this new song in Psalm 96? Why does David say, sing a new song? What new work has God done? What, what, what has been revealed about God that had not been known before? Well, the fact that all the earth is singing, you see that in verse 1, sing to the song all the earth. The fact that all the earth is singing this new song tells us that something cosmic has taken place. Something on that upper meta level has taken place. It's no longer just Israel who sings praises to God, but all the earth. That's new. If all the earth is singing, that means that God has revealed himself as redeemer of all the earth. In other words, the Messiah has come. The blessing to the nations has arrived. And because the Lord has done this, it is right to worship him. And look now how David says we are to worship in light of what he has done. Verse 2. This is one sentence together. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. So the church is to sing to the Lord. Do you see that in verse 2? Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. And the way that we bless his name, singing to him, is telling him of his salvation that he's given us every day. And that, that tell of his salvation, the, the word in the Hebrew there is translated into the Greek, and it's the word evangelize. So it's the same language we see in evangelism. Proclaim the good news of his salvation. But look again, look, the, the, verse 2 says we're telling the Lord. We're evangelizing God. Our, our primary act of worship is to repeat to the Lord what he's done. When, when we gather as a church, I want you to see this. 
when we gather together, we're not gathering to make sure that visitors feel comfortable. Although visitors, you're welcome. I'm glad you're here. But, but we're not here to make you feel comfortable. We're not here to make you feel accepted. We're not here, we're not gathering to draw as large a crowd as possible. We're not even gathering primarily to share the gospel with visitors. Though the gospel will be proclaimed, and I pray that they hear it and believe it. But listen, God says here, our primary purpose in being recreated as the people of God, brought into the gathering of his people, our primary purpose is to worship God. Sing to the Lord first. So when we gather together, that's what we do. And we have intentionally, as pastors, following the example of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of church wisdom, we intentionally shape the worship service so that it is God-oriented. It begins with God's word calling us in. And usually a song of worship that speaks of his triune greatness. And then the work of the, and we sing of the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in salvation. And then we confess our sins. Why do we confess our sins? Because confession of sins is an act of worship. It's an act of showing our confidence in Christ. Because I know that Christ has saved me, I can freely confess my sins. If I believe I am being renewed in the image of my creator, my desire is to repent, put off the works of the flesh, and turn to Christ and put on Christ. If I have not been saved by Christ, then confession and repentance are abhorrent. Confession and repentance, when you don't have Christ, means that you are admitting You are insufficient, inadequate, unholy, and needy. And proud hearts hate that sort of thing. So why do we as a church do something that makes unbelieving visitors feel uncomfortable? Because we're gathered to tell God what He has done. We're gathered to worship Him. And because we believe in God's sovereignty and salvation... We're not worried about offending visitors when we praise God for his good works. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy so we can obey God and worship God and God will save who he is saving. God calls us into worship by his word. We sing his praises back to him. We confess our sins. We revel in the glory of the cross. We sing some more. We pray to him in thanksgiving. We sing of his mighty works. We bring our concerns to him in prayers and in intercession. We hear our Savior proclaimed in his word, and we respond in more singing. All of this, all of what we do when we gather for worship is oriented toward God. All of it is worship. But does that not mean that We keep the gospel between us and God only? No. This this is a psalm about worship in the age of the church. And to worship God means to tell of what he has done. And we tell him what he has done, and we tell the nations what he has done. Look at verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So, So the new creation people who worship in spirit And in truth, worship God in such a way that they declare God's glory to God and among the nations. And they declare his marvelous works among all the peoples. Do you see that in verse 3? And the verb in this verse is declare, or you could say announce or proclaim, very much like we saw in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood because of Christ's work, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, No longer in Adam, but you're now in Christ, and his spirit is in you that you may proclaim his excellencies. Right? Remember that? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter's just repeating Psalm 96. The new creation worshipers proclaim God's glory. We proclaim his wonderful works to the nations. And to all peoples. So I want you to see this. Bearing witness of God's work to others 
is worship. Have you thought about it that way? I think sometimes we tell of God's glory to the nations. We proclaim the gospel with only conversion in mind. As if the end goal of bearing witness to God's greatness and his glory is the conversion of the person hearing us. Here's the problem with that approach. And I see this in my life, so I can say this looking in the mirror. If I see someone who, in my estimation, is nowhere near ready to hear the gospel, as in, I know they're going to reject it, because we don't even have the same definition of the word truth. What do I do? Well, if my end goal is conversion, I say to myself, they're not going to receive it. Why should I waste my time? Why should I embarrass myself telling them about who God is and what he's done? But their conversion, look, verse 3 shows us their conversion is not why we proclaim God's glory and his mighty works. God's glory is the goal of the worshiper. God's glory is why we proclaim his greatness and his work to the heathen, as the King James puts it. God is glorified when you tell of his name and his good works. In fact, he has redeemed you in order that you would be a worshiper who proclaims his name and his good works. And he will save his elect through your proclamation. And he will bring them into the church and the kingdom by the means that he has given us through your proclamation. But your motivation is simply his glory. Your motivation is his glory. And that relieves all the pressure, doesn't it? Because that means you have not failed your purpose if the heathen rejects the gospel. God is glorified regardless of their reaction. Praise God if they believe and amen. What a beautiful thing to be the means that God uses to bring someone to faith. But do not think that God is less praiseworthy if they do not receive the good news of redemption that Christ brings. God is glorified in their salvation because in their salvation, his grace and his mercy shine through. But God is also glorified in their judgment. Because God is judge, and his judgments are right, and his judgment shows forth his righteousness. Verses four through six tells us, tell us rather, why we do this. Why do we sing to God and tell of his works? Why do we proclaim his glory to the nations? Well, in a few words, verses four through six say, because he's worthy. Look at verse 4. Why do we do this? Because for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. If we've been redeemed, Christians, we know the Lord's goodness. And we know the Lord's kindness to us in Christ. And so we praise him. Because Yahweh is great, he's to be praised. And we consider, when we consider the Lord versus all of the idols, all of the idols of the nations, we are to proclaim his name as the one who is greater than the idols. We proclaim even to those who worship the idols. What do we mean by that? Well, well now that Christ has come, God has been revealed to be triune. And any religion that does not see God as three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, any religion that doesn't acknowledge that and, and, and ascribe to God, his trinity, those people are worshiping other gods, idols. So when you proclaim the one true God and you proclaim his work to them, you're glorifying God and proclaiming his superiority to the idols. How is he superior? Well, verse 5 tells us they're worthless. (laughs) Some, Some translations even say they, the other gods, the gods of the peoples, are demons. But God, the one true God, made the heavens. So even if people are are worshiping something like an angel or or a demon, something that actually has being, existence, when when they're worshiping Allah or Thor or Zeus or, 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 or the gods of Pride Month or whatever it may be, gods of the cults, only the one true God made the heavens. 
He made the planets. So, so, so when, when people worship Jupiter floating across the heavens, when they see that planet in the night sky, and they say, well, that must be some god pulling something. David says, God, God made all of that. Why would you worship something less than the one who made all of that? He made the angels. He made the demons. He made the planets. He made the heavens. Only God is worthy of praise. And only the true God, look at verse 6, only the true God has splendor and majesty before him. Only the true God has strength and beauty in his sanctuary. Now, we don't use words like splendor, do we? Majesty, sanctuary. We don't use those words very much because we don't contemplate God's throne room very much. But that's what's being described here. David's talking about the wonder of the dwelling place of God, his throne room, his sanctuary. This is David's way of saying only God is who he is. There's no one like him. He is clothed in brightness and power, even being in his sanctuary, stepping into the room, not even being able to see anything, but stepping into that temple causes you to see the beauty and the mighty that must be there through the light that's blinding you. No other God is like this. Only the one true God is worthy of worship. Therefore, what do we do? Worship him. And what does it mean to worship him? Well, here's another angle. In addition to singing, which is what we see, we're singing before the Lord and we're declaring his glory among the nations. In addition to those two aspects of worship, the Spirit says our worship of God is to, in verses 7 and 8, Ascribe, 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 and bring an offering. (laughs) Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering, come into his courts. The the, the idea here is, is that we are to give the Lord what is due him. He's glorious, he's mighty, and so we are to respond as those who believe that he's truly glorious and mighty. We respond in in fear and reverence. We sing songs that tell of his glory and his might. We write books of his glory and his might and his strength and his power. All of that is ascribing. So we, we also bring an offering, it says, Verse 7, the word says in verse 7, we bring an offering, what Hebrews calls the sacrifice of praise. We come into his courts, and in his courts, within the splendor of his holiness, his sanctuary, that's where we praise him. That's where we praise the Lord. The, The final sacrifice has already been made, right? Christ has already brought atonement there. And so when we come, we're not bringing, we're coming with our hands empty because the sacrifice has been made. But we come with our bodies, we sing to him, We praise his name. And here's where, verse 9, verse 9 is where I want you to pay really close attention. The Spirit says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. That that is a reality that I want you to ponder for a moment. This is is what is happening. Verse 9 describes what is happening when you, the church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, gather together. You're coming into the splendor of holiness. That is, his courts. It's exactly as Christian read in Hebrews. Hebrews 12 says, but you come to splendor of holiness, right? Mount Zion, the city of living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels of the festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God, to Jesus. That's where we are right now. And knowing that that's where we are spiritually, right now when we gather together as a church, as an assembly, that affects how we gather That's why verse 9 is so important. Let me just be as explicit as possible. I don't do this often. I usually try to preach only in affirmations, but I'm going to give you three denials. Denial number one, gathering for worship is not coming to a classroom 
to receive a lesson. If it were just a lesson, then we could receive it all in our homes watching online. And any time of the day, we could just download that information into our brains. But the gathering of God's people for worship, the gathering into his throne room, is far more than that. It is the people of God gathered as the body of Christ. And when we look around and we see one another, we are built up in love for one another, and we encourage and we exhort one another as the temple. And so we are built up as the dwelling place for the Spirit. And that, that gathering of Christ's temple, his body, is a witness to the world. It's a witness to the outside world. And we saw this just a couple years ago. The world said, stop them from gathering. Stop them from gathering. That's not essential. But despite the state's hatred of the true temple, gathering is an essential aspect of what it means to be the church. Because we are the body of Christ, the temple. Second denial. Gathering is not coming to a concert hall to hear a band or a choir, or a symphony, or whatever it may be. You'll notice when we sing, all of the lights are on. We don't turn down the lights and turn up the stage speakers so that we're giving the impression that it's just you and the band and maybe the Holy Spirit if we have sung the right songs that give you the right feels. No, no, look around. And this is why the lights are on. Look around. This is God's temple, not this structure, not the building, but the people. Each and every one of you is a part of his temple because each, of one, each and every one of you in Christ is indwelt by the Spirit. And so we do not invite the Spirit into this place so that we can worship. No, God has invited you into his place so that you will worship by the power of the Spirit that he's already given you, who indwells you. So when, you, when you're gathered together, you are seeing the temple, but your focus is on Jesus Christ himself. And that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Because I don't see Jesus. And, and, and when I say that, I don't mean, bear with me, I don't mean this imitation that sometimes is lit up. We had to turn this light off that once was on because one church member once told me if the light is not on, and that if for those of you who are new with us, there is an image of a, a guy there. If that light is not on, then I cannot see Jesus, and so I can't worship. And that was the moment when I became really uncomfortable as a shepherd having an image lit that made people think that's Jesus. Now, we meditate on Jesus through the word proclaimed. God has said in 2 Timothy, when you gather, preach the word. And so that's what we do. As ministers, servants of Christ, we preach his word. And our goal in preaching is to show forth Christ in his word. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to, to tell you how to live your life. I'm trying to get you to see Christ because you will be transformed as you meditate on Christ. And so the, the images that God has prescribed for us in worship, the images of the gospel that Jesus has given us are many. The images are the Christian marriages in this room. Husband sacrificially living towards his wife in the way that Christ died for the church. The wife submitting to her husband in the way that the church submits to Christ. This is the image of the gospel that God has given us. Another image that God has given us is our sacrificial love for one another that we share as Christ's body. 
And as we worship, another image that the Lord has given us is the Lord's table where we commune together around where we see the images that Christ has ordained, the bread, his body, the wine, his blood. And as you meditate on Christ, as you hear the word preached, and as the Spirit in you points your hearts toward the Son, that's what transforms you. Worship then has this effect. We become like what we worship. Last denial of these three denials, we're not coming to a theater to be entertained. We, as Hebrews and Psalms tell us, we are coming into the presence of God in His throne room to worship Him. And so you will acknowledge that our prayers are not entertaining. But the Lord says to continue steadfastly in prayer. And we're called to worship Him and obey Him, and so that's what we do. Scripture readings are not meant to entertain. But First Timothy says we are to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And this is God's worship service, and so we do what God says to do. We hear from the Lord. Preaching is not meant primarily to be entertaining. It's meant to point you to Christ. And you will likely grow like you would in a a classroom. You'll grow in your understanding. And I do think, I hope, that you will enjoy the preaching. If you're born again, you know it's a delight to see God in, in, in His Word and to see Christ magnified in the Word of God. But the focus is not on the delight that I would try to manipulate in you. The the focus is on Christ himself. The focus is meant to be on Christ in worship. The the preacher, whether that's me or or the other pastors, our goal is to get the focus off of us and onto Christ in his word. So the church's worship is not a classroom, it's not a concert hall, and it's not a movie theater. But it is the gathering with the assembly of the firstborn, those who are enrolled in heaven And we are coming before God in his holy city, on his holy mountain, and he is judge over all. And because we've been brought into union with Christ, where we are in him, where he is, we are where he is in the splendor of God's holiness. And we look around and we say, Dustin, I'm still not seeing it. There's some funny looking people in here. We don't, we don't see it, just as we don't see right now we are already seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't see right now that we've already been clothed with Christ's righteousness. There are things that we don't see yet, but we will see when he comes. Already you have been brought into Christ. You were already with him in union with him in the presence of God. And so that affects, it should affect, how we gather for worship. And so how do we do it? Look at verse 9. We go before him in humility, tremble before him, he says, all the earth. If all the earth is worshiping God, we worship him in humility. The posture we bring, the heart attitude we bring, and the the expectations that, that we ascribe to him, All of that is is due to to, to the greatness of his name. So our posture, what we would call our godliness, our piety, is recognition of who we are in Christ, where we are when we worship. That's why we strive to have a reverent worship service. And as we do that, as we continue in worship and as we continue to be the earthly temple of the Lord God, the place of worship that is actually a people, here's what happens. We show that Christ is Lord over all. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is established, it shall never be moved. And I think what he means by world there is the new creation. This this is unshakable, as we saw in, in Hebrews 12. The world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. This is speaking of a new creation reality. When the world sees the church as the ever-expanding temple of God, 
the reign of Christ increases and increases and increases across the nations. And this is the effect of the church in worship. It increases the visible reign of Christ. And the end point of this, as the nations repent, turn from idolatry, and are reconciled to God through Christ and become true worshipers, well, that's the signal of the restoration. That's the signal of the the reconciliation of all things. And we see that described in verses 11 to 13. The heavens are glad about this. The earth rejoices in this. The heavens means the sun and moon and all the stars and the planets. The earth is all the earth. The sea roars in worship. All that is in the seas, and that's the fish and the dolphins and the whales and the krill and the seaweed and the sand dollars and the lobsters. The fields, the fields exult and all that is in the fields, he says. So that's the ants and the armadillos and the coyotes and the cougars and the lions and lambs and the gophers and giraffes, kangaroos and rhinos and even the snails. All of them are praising the triune God, praising the triune God. Then verse 12 says, the, sh- the trees shout for joy in Christ. Why? Because the reconciliation of humanity to God means that the worship leaders are rightly on the platform again with their heads turned toward the one true God leading all of creation in worship. This is what you have been created for. Humanity in Christ as God's true and restored image bearers are created to rightly rule over creation. And that looks like this, humanity in worship. Worship of the living God. And so in response to our kingship and our right worship to the one true God, Creation itself responds in worship as well. And Christ is exalted as the great high king, and he comes to show his reign over all in judgment. It's the last verse. He judges the world. Those who have not received him in righteousness, he judges. And he judges the people who have received him in faithfulness. God in Christ is then shown at the end to be the righteous one and the faithful one at his return because the church has spread his rightful reign across the earth through right worship, through the proclamation to the nations, through the holiness that is wrought in us by Christ, and through our singing back to God what he's already done. Amen? Let's praise him in prayer.